around the world, engineers and architects, constructors and owner-operators are using Bentley software solutions to design, build and operate the infrastructure that sustains our economy and our environment, including integrated applications and services built on an open platform our solutions enable digital workflows across engineering disciplines and distributed project teams from the office to the field. And today, leverage digital twin technology to help solve the most complex of engineering challenges. Together, we are advancing infrastructure. Welcome to the first episode of the Engineers Collective of 2023. I'm Claire Smith and I'm editor of New Civil Engineer and your host for today's episode. We're going to be taking a trip back 10 years and looking at the design and construction of the Shard in London, which opened on the 1st of February 2013. If you've been in London in the last decade, the Shard is hard to miss. It is the UK's tallest building at 309.6 metres. The structural engineering design for the 72-storey building was undertaken by WFP to bring to the design by architect Renzo Piano to life, and the main construction was undertaken by Mace. But the names of the other firms involved in the design and construction reads like a who's who of civil engineering. However, it was the developer, seller, property groups, Irvine Seller, who brought the vision for the building and brought the team together and brought that to life. Irvine died in 2017 at the age of 82, but joining me for the conversation about London's iconic building, we have Flan McNamara, who is also known by the nickname of the man who built the Shard. And together we're going to be looking back at what made the project such a success. Fan has over 35 years of varied experience in design, development and construction management. After working on the £2 billion Shard Quarter Scheme as Project Managing Director for Seller, Fan joined Osborne & Co as its Design and Construction Director in 2017. Since joining Osborne, he has led teams delivering design and planning approval on a number of major schemes, including the new JP Morgan headquarters in Glasgow, Santander Bootle, Belfast Riverside, and the new headquarters for Santander in Milton Keynes. Flan is currently leading the delivery of the complex £210 million Factory International Arts venue in Manchester on behalf of client Manchester City Council. Major redevelopment projects are clearly what Flan enjoys. He has previously been construction director of the £1.5 billion Westfield London shopping mall at White City for Westfield Multiplex, as well as working on other major London projects such as Broadgate, Canary Wharf, Napwest Tower, Albion Riverside and the Royal Opera House. In between all that, he's still found time to work on international projects too. So thank you for sparing the time among all of that to join us today and welcome to the Engineers Collective, Flam. Oh, thank you for inviting me, Claire. So it almost feels like yesterday that the Shard opened and I can hardly believe it's been 10 years already. But to start the conversation off, I think we need to go much further back than that, to 1998, I think, to when the concept for the Shard was first developed. How different was it in terms of design and location to what had gone before, either in London or worldwide? I think um, the previous iterations before Renzo came on board had gone through sort of a a pre-application process, and none of them were felt iconic or high quality enough to to match the the location at so near to london bridge you know with views behind to st paul's and various other things so i think the previous schemes made it onto a drawing board but never got very far 
I think James and Irvine Seller went out and looked around the world to find an architect. And in that case, they found uh, um, Renzo. And Renzo, very quickly, as I understand the story, and I I must be clear, I wasn't involved in the project at that time, um, sketched up, uh, allegedly, and I I have no reason to doubt it being absolutely true, uh, in a a, a restaurant in in, um, Berlin, the first simple concept for the Shard. And uh, that is the scheme that ultimately was submitted for planning in early 2000 and was the subject of a planning inquiry, which was um, uh, successfully um, achieved. And and from that, it then took really to 2009 when I joined for the building to reach a stage where they were ready to appoint a contractor. There's... much of that was to do with the marketplace. Much of that was also to do with um, uh, construction costs and getting funders and all the like. So uh, I can't speak uh, lyrically on those issues, but the, when I arrived in 2009, we were ready to go. So what was your first reaction to the concept? I, look, it was very, very iconic. It, it was elegant. I, I mean, I looked at it ele- as, a, as a real elegant building and and i also of course coming from a building back and you you look at it and you think god that's going to be hard to build um and it didn't turn out it didn't uh, turn out to be wrong in that front but it, you know it's the sort of project that gets you up in the morning early gets you going and i i was i you know i i really wanted to do the job that's what i recall my my very first impressions of it now, the Shard is very visible, but it's only one part of the Shard Quarter project. Can you explain what the other elements were, please? Yes, the uh, the, the the other elements that formed the the, the 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 setting for the Shard, as it were, were we were required to rebuild the uppermost entrance to the new London Bridge station. We had to rebuild the bus station for London buses uh, and realign it so that it was part of you got off your bus and you could see straight onto the platforms. That was part of the, the concept. And the third, and, and, and the, not the third, the, the next building along was the news building. At the, that point, it was a speculative building built actually as for multi-let. Uh, my first job actually on the development was to take that building through planning and, you know, get a contractor for that and, and, and move on, get the design completed um, before getting really heavily involved in the shard. And the last piece of that, um, what used to be known as the trilogy, um, was the Shard Place development, which is ongoing now. I'm, I think it's due to be finished this year, um, which is a, a residential building. So, so the whole idea was to create a place, a destination. And, and I don't think it's failed in that, you know, of all the things, I don't think it's failed on that front. No, because also Network Rail were redeveloping their London Bridge station at the same time. It's really transformed the area, hasn't it? It has, and and uh, people misunderstand, or uh, probably don't because they're not so close to it, how influential, how important Network Rail, London Underground and London buses are to the success of that whole area. And and in the end, it's also a fact that the site that uh, we we leased actually from Network Rail. So Network Rail's influence on what we could and couldn't do in the Shard was very strong. 
I've been um, commuting in and out of London Bridge for about 12, 15 years now, and it really has transformed the area. Yeah. But I wonder what, you know, when you were working on it, what were the main barriers from taking it from the design stage to actually what we have now? I think the first and and strongest issue was getting a contractor. If, If one moves on from finance and all that side of it, which wasn't really my area of expertise. Um, It was getting a contractor who was brave enough to do the project. Um, We were in a period post-2008 where the market was a bit all over the place. You know, there'd been lots of financial problems and a lot of main contractors had looked at the project but did not have the experience. So, you know, they hadn't done high rise before. They certainly hadn't done high rise over 200 metres. There was a lack of expertise, but the consistent contractor through all of this period, both pre-construction and in contract, was MACE. And And I think that MACE, finding that partner in MACE, was the single act that made the Shard successful. Great. Can you talk me through some of the technical innovations that enabled it to be built? Well, um, in, in no particular order of importance. The first, the first one, which was developed actually by um, WSP in conjunction with Robert Burden Partners, uh, because Mace were working with Robert Burden Partners at the time, was to manage to get the core moving forward up to at least 20 floors from a program point of view without pouring the basement slab to stabilise it. So... What happened was that um, we we got up to 20 floors and then we, we definitely had to stabilise. So we ended up pouring over 5,500 cube of concrete in one bank holiday weekend, which is the equivalent of over 750 concrete deliveries. And and it's an amazing, um, an amazing testimony to... Uh, Burn Brothers were obviously the, the concrete contractor at the time. Amazing testimony to that, but... What is important as well is the logistics of doing that. You couldn't have done it at any other time. We had a single delivery bay and the amount of heat build up from the concrete without getting too techy um, was a major, major uh, undertaking. By that stage, of course, we had a, a basement built almost, but without a, without a core slab. Wow, that sounds amazing. What about the other innovations? Is there anything else that you brought uh, uh, Yeah, absolutely. Uh, you know, we, we uh, the lifts were used during construction because we built temporary lift motor rooms because of the height and because of pure logistics were built. We lifted the the um, temporary lift motor rooms were built inside the shafts so they could be lifted every 15 floors or whatever so that the, the lifts could be used, the permanent lifts could be used. And that was very successful. And I, doubt, I very much doubt we would have able be, been able to keep to the programme because... Putting houses in the outside of the building are always affected by wind. And, and you know, I'll, I'll perhaps talk later about the effects of wind in building in London Bridge. But it, for certain, that was a huge, um, a huge success factor. One of the other big success factors in innovation was doing putting cranes that could climb when they were up the top of the building on a, on a sloping surface. And, and that was an incredibly good thing. It hadn't been done before, as far as I know, other than I believe in South Korea. And, and again, the, some of the iconic pictures of the project as it was being built show these cranes. And it, the whole craneage strategy and understanding how they would work at those wind speeds was a huge problem for us. Um, at that time, 
prefabrication of MEP services wasn't quite as sort of advanced as it is today, or there wasn't so many sources of it. But I would say, and I don't have an exact figure of this, probably over 70% of the MEP was um, prefabricated off-site and brought along. And again, that was hugely important from a, a, a logistics and, you know, people business. Safety. But it's also quite, quite unusual in that period. Now we kind of accept that that's normal to yeah, build off-site. you wouldn't do it any other way. Yeah, whereas the back then, sort of 15 years ago, that must have been quite unusual. Oh, it was. It was. And, and it was, I have to say, Mace brought that innovation to us. Uh, and they, at that time, they, they had Mace MEP and they worked with specific subcontractors and did us. And, and it was a, it, it definitely took a lot of pressure off the numbers on site and getting them up and down the building and everything like that. So you've, you've run through some of the firms that were involved there. There are quite a few names. Can you talk about the procurement approach for the Shard and tell me through perhaps what worked well and what, what other projects can learn from that? Well, it, it, it's a, I have to say it's a victim of its timing, and I, I touched on that earlier. The, the, there wasn't really, the, ideally, there would have been a fixed price lump sum tender. Um, but in the end, you need enough willing parties to do that. And, and there wasn't. Uh, and I think that we originally we went out to three, but when you boiled it down through the, the, the various stages of procurement, Mace just kept there and Mace put the biggest effort in and they wanted to win the job. And in the end, it became a hybrid of fixed price, but negotiated. Mm. And ultimately, the success of that can be seen is the job was delivered on time and slightly below budget. That's quite unusual. And, and people don't know, aren't aware of it, because given the, the sort of leading edge of the building and the unknown nature, again, the experience in the market, it was quite hard for them to price it. But... I think May saw that as a, a means to become not just a, a construction management company, but a fixed price contractor. And clearly, you can see the nature of their business these days. A lot of their work is fixed price. And how did you work with the other companies involved? Was it a lot of an integrated team or were you all yeah, very yeah, aware we were of who all, you worked for? Well, it was, listen, I would say from a personal point of view, it's one of the best teams I've ever worked with. They, when I first got there, there was a little bit of fiefdoms and, and you know, the, 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 it, protectionism. It's the nature, it's probably the nature of the industry at times, but it doesn't work. And, and I think that probably my first move was to stop some of that and get people understanding that there was only one goal and it was delivering the shard. And, and that came really from the seller family. You know, the, at the end of the day, uh, you need a leadership that drives a particular goal. And, uh, you know, my goal was to deliver that for, for the Seller family and obviously the Qatari involvement. But what, what, I'm, what, I'm, what was really important was to get people just understanding that mistakes will occur, you're doing something really innovative, uh, not done in London before, not done in the UK before, and probably not done in Europe or further afield before. So we we did change and, and we worked well, but... There was such a wide team. You, we had something like 30 people from Network Rail working with us directly in the same office uh, as asset protection. Remember, we were above the fourth busiest station in the UK at that time, which is, I'm told, if I remember the figures correctly, 52 million passenger trips a year. And, and you had, first and foremost, to think of their safety because you're building above them. And, and 
uh, it, that was that was one of the challenges. But I think coming back to the procurement, it is it became a marriage that suited everyone and got value for the client, even though and it wasn't a uh, lowest bidder gets everything type of approach. That was one thing it absolutely wasn't because everyone was sensible in the discussions. And we had a very we'd, we had a very intelligent client in the shape of the Qataris as well. You know, they, they understood this was innovative. So focusing in on the build itself, were there any heart-stopping moments or sleepless nights during the build for you? Loads of sleepless nights. And uh, most of my sleepless nights were spent at London Bridge, uh, actually there, um, including one Christmas Day evening where we had flown in a team to take adva- from Austria to take advantage of the fact the station was closed to put in the first columns. And uh, that, was, that was definitely heart-stopping. But I think as you're building over the station, you have to be incredibly careful. And every event needs to be thoroughly thought through. It, it, you, if you look at the site, and if you go through London Bridge, you look up through the, the roof, you see the shard and every glass panel that's on that side that we put in. So where, where the detail comes in important is things like carrying tools or, or a bolt up a building. If it drops, it will drop straight through into the station. So all equipment had to be tethered, even a bolt, bolts had to be counted out, counted back, no one could take any chance. And I have to say, we were very successful. I mean, uh, as a team, we, we put such attention into it. Uh, there were many other events that, uh, you know, working around the Olympics, working around uh, events, surprise events and all that were, were difficult. But it, it, there was many. I, I, I'm, I could go on all night about heart-stopping moments, but I, I'd say the most, what was the most difficult? There isn't a most difficult. I think it was... Every week was a different challenge. That's partly why we do this work, isn't it, I guess? It is, yeah. So looking back, what is it you're most proud of when it comes to the Shard? Well, I, I touched on, I'm most proud of the fact we delivered on time and on budget. And, and that was really important. I, I, I must say it, it was made easier by the fact that I think we were in a, a non, it wasn't too inflationary a, a marketplace. And at that time, people were beginning to get hungry for work again. And I think that helped the situation. Uh, but I think we were very careful. We had a sensible cost plan. Uh, we had contractors in Mace that weren't, you know, that, that were had thought about the job and thought about the cost of the job. We had very good subcontractors. I, I'm proud of the team, mostly. That that would be probably the thing that, that strikes me most. Um, so... Uh, that, that's the part. And I'm proud as well of the fact that I was given the opportunity to run the project. Uh, I shouldn't forget that. And that's right down to Irvine and James Seller, you know, in the end they had a faith in me to, and stuck with me as well. Brilliant. So looking back, if you were to start the project again today, what do you think you would do differently and maybe how would the design differ as well? I, I'd spend more time on logistics and planning. You can't over-plan or over uh, think through the logistics of the project. The logistics of high-rise is the single driver to be enabled to deliver the program. And I think the tools of today, the digital tools that are available to us today that weren't available at the time, some were, some weren't, would allow that to be done in a much more thorough way. You know, you cannot overplan, and I, you know, it is really the most important thing for me. So I would spend would spend a lot more time on that. 
Uh, and I put more effort into planning of the mix of the buildings. And I'd certainly have, um, so how the bottom, I don't know, you know, it, the building is a true vertical city, really. And you have three completely different uses. And how those integrate together, I think, needed more work. So I'd look at that, but I certainly wouldn't play with the outside of the building or be allowed to play with the outside of the building more to the point. Um, the, the impact, I did put more effort into the impact of weather. At that time, there were no, traf- no records available for anything over 200 metres. So, shar- so really the records were based on Canary Wharf and, and Atwest Tower. And of course, you're working at 300-odd metres. And we, we suffered a lot of downtime on the cranes because of that You're, uh, sort of unplanned time because you you have no you've no comparable and do you think that you would have more knowledge about that now that would make things a bit different oh absolutely and and i think that it certainly makes the case for doing as much of the work as possible off-site i mean there are things you can't do off-site like pouring concrete and uh, but I, I think that you do as much of the interior fit out. You perhaps look at less lifts. So instead of doing one uh, cladding panel at a time, you do you group the panels. And of course, there are all sorts of issues with that because in some ways you're creating a bigger sail to catch the wind. Um, so so there's a draw. There's a turn there. You might you might uh, as an easy example, you might create a bigger internal lift and use that earlier to bring your cladding panels up that way. So so there are many issues of that nature that I think um, can be learned and can be used and otherwise. But the way the industry works, unfortunately, is the lessons get lost because unless you have the same consultants who've been through these higher things. One of the big things on the Shard was the international nature of our design team and the quality of them meant that they had so much high-rise experience from elsewhere. There was no experience in London of buildings taller than 200 metres. Uh, you'll have noticed from earlier that I mentioned I'd worked on that West Tower. Uh, I mean, I'd worked on some other high-rise abroad, in, you know, in Indonesia and elsewhere. But I, and I worked in ba- Barcelona on a, you know, a 46-storey building. But they were still not of this nature and, and certainly not this complexity. And I think this is where the likes of WSP, Arab, Renzo's, of course, have high-rise experience, particularly from New York, and many of the other consultants. And where they consult, where the subcontractors, especially subcontractors, particularly concrete and, and the like, didn't have that experience, they bought it in. So, for instance, Burns use Robert Burden Partners, who have built high-rise all over the world. So all of that meant that we were we had an assurance scheme in place that we all trusted and you know that that was so important for the pe- this wasn't people's first uh, rodeo as it mm. were definitely so what knowledge do you think you took from working on the shard and you've applied to other projects that you've worked on since i think that single-minded focus that sellers had to deliver this uh, and get the best quality they could in terms of the building within a within a cost plan uh, you know, it is, it's that, it's not trying to cheapen things. It's getting the team to also be honest and open to not, yeah, we, we now talk about sort of mental health and that far more and, and, and 
thankfully we do in the industry. But but it is also about the joy of experience of building. You know, for me, I like people to be normal. I like to, you know, good and bad. If you have no row, you have a row. But it's not something that has to become big issues. You you have to understand that people have lives outside of the job. Some of us choose to put too many hours in at work. Others choose to do less. It does, it, that shouldn't be the measure. It shouldn't be the measure that peer pressure makes you work extra hours if you if you can do your job in a lot less hours. But those are the sort of cultural things that existed more so then than they do now. And I think it's making everyone feel a part of that journey. It really is about let them be part of the problem and part of the success. And and I think we were very successful in that. It was a, it was a hard working environment. Make no mistake, but it was it was friendly. So how do you think tall building design has moved on since the Shard opened a decade ago? It's an, it's an interesting question. I think that I haven't seen, you know, I, remember I've been busy doing other things in the meantime, but I, I think I haven't seen significant innovation where I have seen a lot better use of BIM, of modelling generally, of using the model for other reasons. I, I, I mean, it, in those days, it was used, clearly all the structure was always modelled. All, all structures were always modelled, and, and they were ahead of the game by a long way. But but we didn't use BIM in an extreme way we, we should have done on the Shard. We did on the news building, and on the news building, it was a massive success. Allowed us to remove one whole basement level. because And, and the risk at London Bridge, again, uh, but without giving you a history lesson, was the lowest point in the Thames that the Romans arrived in London. And so the archaeology around London Bridge is troublesome. Uh, when I say troublesome, it's great to find, but it can delay you. And what happens, the deeper you go, the more risk you're going to have. And so on the news building, we were able to remove a whole basement level. And I, I think that was hugely beneficial program-wise and risk-wise. Uh, but that was totally out of WSP pushing the whole um, BIM approach and an and integrated BIM as opposed to bits and pieces of BIM. Mm-hmm. And I suppose that's the evolution you've seen on projects since, is that they're using that more uh, and using... I have, but I... Sorry, sorry, Claire, I didn't mean to interrupt you. Um, I've seen BIM move on, but it hasn't moved on at the pace I would have thought it was going to move on. I, I think it's still very patchy. Uh, you know, I... I as you know, I, I sit sometimes in uh, judging competitions. And, and for me, uh, there's some great examples of where it's been used, but the whole use of it to value, to keep records, to show progress, is much of that process could be done out of, uh, uh, call it a digital twin or call it whatever. But it isn't being done. It, it is being done by some people, not everyone. And I do think that is the route to getting simplifying what we're doing and also to reduce the amount of people involved in this but and allowing people to perhaps have more hours where they're not having to be uh you know traveling on trains going to measure a piece of steel off-site when the reality is it there's a record somewhere that says that piece of steel is actually exists there's still a, a level of mistrust in the industry that that should could easily be trimmed back what do you see as the main barriers and opportunities to new tall buildings in um, projects in London? I, I think there's a fear growing that tall buildings are something that we don't want. But from an energy point of view, I still believe that 
the, the sharp concept, which was a first vertical city where uh, elements of the building feed off each other. You can sleep in the building as an, in an apartment. You stay in a hotel. You can work in the office. And if you wanted to, not that everyone would want to, you could do all, the, you could go to restaurants in there. You could do whatever you wanted in there. But I think that concept works really well. And, and, but I think the, the problem in, is that there's a cultural almost hatred of towers. Uh, they've got bad press. And I don't think that is right. I think they're appropriate in certain locations. They're not appropriate. I mean, they're not the answer to everything. But if we go back to the beginning of the Shard, the reason the Shard is where it is, is because the government, um, at a time in the shape of um, John Prescott, I think, decided that high-rise building was appropriate in big transport hubs. And it is still the case that... You you know you can and I'm pleased to hear you you go through London Bridge. That you can still get into London Bridge. You can get straight on your bus. You can get straight on the on the tube. You don't need to drive into London. And it is amazing that the whole of the Shard only has forty eight spaces car parking spaces in a car stacker, uh, which you know is probably the only at that time the only car stacker in London. Um, but it, it is really as a result of that that we didn't have these demands for loads of car parking spaces. So I think. High rise is incredibly appropriate still. I think it is it is good from an energy point of view as long as it's well thought through. Do you think those barriers and opportunities are the same worldwide or is that really just the same in, in the UK? No, I, I, look, I think that there is a real problem with the concept of it in, in uh, the UK. I think people, it's great. I, I travel up and down to Manchester every week and you can see Manchester changing and uh, there are a lot of towers, but they sit, I, I, I won't speak as a, as a Mancunian with this, but, uh, you know, they sit well in the, in the, uh, within the city. They're not taking up loads of land. So you're, 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 you're ending up with more land that you can use for parks, for, for public realm use. You, you, in the end, these cities either grow out or they grow up or, but, a happy medium between those two things is important. And I think we've got that balance slightly wrong in the last few years. I think there's some great examples of towers that have gone up in the city of London, for example, 22 Bishopsgate, that are elegant, they're great on the skyline, they don't distract from anything. And I think what's important is the quality of design. It's not just, you know, doing cookie-cutter towers and, and just putting them anywhere it, that you it, it is... It's about making sure that people living in the towns are safe, making sure that access, numbers of staircases, all of the fire safety issues that are probably a mental fear for many people. Um, th those things have been made worse uh, or have become worse because of many incidents over the years. And I think that towers need to be part of the solution for inner cities and a big part of that. So we've touched on this already briefly, but given the focus on climate change, do you think tall buildings still fit with the drive to carbon net zero, or do you think we're at the end of the push to ever taller towers? That's a, it's a very interesting question, and I, I'm not sure I'm qualified to, to comment properly on it, but what I would say is that I think it is back to design. It, it, you're building buildings, and it, you know you have a big tower. How are you recycling the energy within that tower. So if I give you a good example, the Shard has three major uses. The bottom third of the building is offices. 
generally there'll be a, a surplus of energy there that can be used somewhere else. So if you reclaim that and then use it to feed a hotel or something in the same building, but single-use towers are, are, I think, a problem on that front. I'm not sure that that multi-use towers would have the same problem. And I think there's a case to be made. But again, uh, I think you, when you're building towers, you also have to be thinking about how you unbuild towers or how you recycle them, I should say. Mm. Yeah, so the circular economy will become more important when you're actually designing and constructing. Absolutely. And I think, you know, we design buildings you know, broadly for different periods of time, but say 60 years. You've just got to take that seriously that someone in 60 years is going to inherit the problem of, or, or it, it, real, the reality is it'll be 100 years plus, but, you know, someone has to take it down again or reclad it or whatever. And and that's where I think in designing buildings now, I think more effort should go into it. Mm-hmm. So do you think that at some point the Shard will no longer be the UK's tallest tower? Do you think in 10 years' time we might be talking about a different building? Or do you think the Shard's going to keep that? It will keep it forever in London because no one can go any taller than a 1,000 feet, which is effectively 310 metres. What I would say to you is I think that's a stupid uh, um, height to set it. And it's set, as I understand the the basic rule of it, it's set because of the approach to London City Airport. So a 1,000 feet is high you can go. But it's, it's, it's false in a sense, in my personal view now, not, uh, uh, is that you could go taller, you should go taller. There is no problem with it. As long as, again, as long as you make the energy argument, you make the quality of design, because pl- planes and helicopters and whatever are flying around London, are not, they're not flying blindly. And, and whether you're at 1,000 foot or you're at 2,000 feet, I think that that's a matter of... Uh, making sure that the air traffic understands where where these obstructions are you know it's, a, it's like flying around a mountain as it's simplest but uh, so i don't think i think the the someone will eventually go taller that's what i believe genuinely and if they do you're the man for the job to build it is that right I'm, i'll sign up tomorrow i'd love to do it brilliant i think that's just about all we've got time for today it's been a really fascinating discussion and i wonder where the world of tall buildings and what that would look like in 10 years time when the shard celebrates its 20th anniversary So join us again soon for another episode of The Engineers Collective. The Engineers Collective is powered by Bentley Systems, with industry-leading software solutions used by professionals in organisations of all sizes for the design, construction and operation of roads and bridges, rail and transit, water and wastewater, public works and utilities, buildings campuses and industrial facilities, Bentley can help accelerate your digital transformation. To find out more, visit www.bentley.com forward slash The Engineers Collective.